Courage to Hope with Tony LaGreca is a show supporting the fight for sobriety against substance abuse and changing the stigma that comes along with it. Tony has been helping families, friends, and loved ones discover recovery services as well as coping skills for over six years following the death of his own son to opioids. Join Tony and his guests each week as they reveal the courage to hope. Here's your host, Tony LaGreca. Thank you, Ben. Tonight we have a very special guest, Ryan Hampton, and I want to give you a little background on Ryan. In September 2019, Purdue Pharma, the maker of OxyContin, a company controlled by the infamous billionaire Sackler family, filed for bankruptcy to protect itself from 2,600 lawsuits for its role in fueling the U.S. overdose crisis. Author and activist Ryan Hampton served as co-chair in the official creditors committee that acted as a watchdog during the process. One of only four victims appointed among representatives of big insurance companies, hospitals, and pharmacies, he entered the case believing that exposing the Sacklers and mobilizing against Purdue would be enough to right the scales of justice. But he soon learned that behind closed doors, justice had plenty of internal competition and it came with a hefty price tag. So Ryan, welcome to the show. Tony, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm grateful to be here and grateful to be with you uh, specifically. Thank you for having me. Thank you. The last time we were together, it was a bit colder. We were outside. And it I'll was. Give a little background on that. Uh, the listeners remember back in December, we did a march to the Attorney General's building in D.C. And uh, Ryan was one of the uh, guest speakers for that event uh, out in front of the DOJ building. And uh, <clears throat> I think we got a little bit of exposure from that, but Brian, let's give us a little more background. How did you get even involved and what made you become an activist to begin with on the opioid crisis? Yeah, thank you for asking that question. Um, you know, I uh, certainly never thought, nor was the trajectory of my life at one point to be someone who was directly impacted uh, by the overdose crisis, by the opioid, you know, addiction to opioid crisis. Um, I, you know, grew up in Miami, Florida, um, had a, a pretty uh, normal childhood. Um, and, you know, we did have issues in my family. You know, my uh, things kind of got turned up on their head when I was 12 years old and my father went away to prison um, for, for uh, federal wire fraud. And it, it, really had an impact on our family, obviously, because my dad went away and my mom kind of had to hold down the fort and hold things together in the family. And as a result of, you know, him going away, she ended up working three jobs and I had to change schools. And, you know, we, we, we had lost our house that I had grown up in. And, you know, there were a lot of adverse kind of experiences after 12 years old, um, in, in, in my childhood. And, and, um, I was always kind of searching, you know, for a reason to get out of the house, you know, to get away from the madness. And I had attached myself to politics and was just fascinated by history and government and policy as a young kid. And I found myself, you know, volunteering after school for political campaigns and in, you know, congressional offices and interning in, in high school, just as a way to get out of the house and, and try and do something with my life. And, you know, that kind of snowballed in 1996 for me when Bill Clinton ran for reelection 
I uh, ended up interning and volunteering for his reelection campaign. And um, I was a, a sophomore and a junior going to my junior year of high school and starting to look at colleges. And when it came time to you know, select a college, I was dead set on finding somewhere that was as far away from Miami, Florida, which is where I was from. Um, and that for me, that was Washington, D.C. and got accepted to a school up there on a scholarship and um, also landed an internship at the White House as a result of my work on the campaign and um, worked at the White House from 99 to 2001. And it turned into a junior staff position and just kind of had this you know, rising star, I guess you, you could call it in, in policy and organizing and, you know, worked for a few governor's campaigns while I was in college and uh, ended up working at the Democratic National Committee, actually, as a, in, in, a, in a pretty senior role as the uh, a deputy director of, of fundraising for the Southeast. And uh, that was for the 2004 campaign. And um, it all kind of came crumbling down on me. You know, one afternoon I, I went um, hiking on a, on a trail, uh, right outside of DC called the Billy goat trail and, uh, fell and I injured my knee and I injured my, my ankle really bad and ended up in the care of a, a urgent care physician right outside of, of DC in Maryland. And the doctor looked at my knee and said, Hey, you're going to need to get that checked out. You know, you're going to need to get that fixed and get an MRI. But in the meantime, here's a prescription, you know, to help with the pain. And, it was for Dilaudid, hydromorphone, but it was for, for brand name Dilaudid, which I didn't know until actually I entered the Purdue case that that's, that's a Purdue product also. Purdue uh, manufactured Dilaudid, brand name Dilaudid. And um, I never did go get that MRI, but what did keep happening is I kept going back to that doctor for a prescription and another prescription and they wrote it for me and they said, this, you know, this is normal and just get it checked out when you can. The nexus of this story, though, and really the perfect storm for me was shortly after that injury, my father had passed away and we had a really rocky relationship and uh, for, for obvious reasons. And um, I had to move back home to Florida. My mom lived in Broward County, Florida in South Florida uh, to be closer to home. And um, I took a job down there working on a political campaign and I went home to Florida and uh, still had this knee injury that I hadn't checked out. And I said, you know, I'm going to go take care of this uh, finally and, and, you know, figure out how to get off these meds. And I'm, I got to work and travel and I can't have this, this limping leg the whole time. And I went to my primary care physician as soon as I had moved back home. And I said, hey, doc, doc, who I'd been seeing since I was a young kid. Um, I, I, you know, I had this injury, I, uh, seeing this doctor in Maryland and they had me on this prescription and I'm supposed to get something taken care of with it and MRIs. And he said, well, he's like, I'm not really that type of doctor. You need to go see a pain specialist. And, uh, he said, there's plenty of them for you to choose from. Just open up the Miami new times, which was a daily periodical and you'll find one. So that's what I did. I opened up the Miami new times and I found a pain specialist um, and went into that pain specialist and told them what was going on. And I, uh, wanted to, you know, take care of it. And that, that was, it was that day I walked out with my first prescription for Oxycontin. Um, I was told by that doctor that, you know, uh, dependence doesn't equal addiction and it could, it was something called pseudo addiction and it was completely normal. And it was important that I manage the pain so that I'm able to work you know, and it, and it wasn't really a problem at first. Um, I took the medications as prescribed, 
Um, but over time, and when I say time, I mean two years, they kept up, upping the dose and upping the dose and upping the dose to the point where I needed to see more than one doctor. And then they kept up in the dose there. And then I was seeing two doctors. And then before you know it, I wasn't able to work without taking this medication. And I can remember the first time I realized I might have a problem in late 2004. Uh, I went to work one day and I hadn't had my prescription. I thought it would be fine. I would just get it the next day because I had run out and I got sick, incredibly sick by the end of the day. Oh, yeah. And um, my first thought at that point wasn't, hey, Ryan, you might have a problem. You should go to rehab. My first thought was, how do I get more medication so that I can feel better and so that I can work? Um, my journey into addiction was not protracted. Um, it was within two years that I had, you know, was unemployable, um, uninsurable, <laughs> didn't have health insurance, homelessness for the first time, treatment for the first time in 2006, uh, overdose for the first time in 2007, IV use of Oxycontin by 2007, and eventually graduated to full-blown heroin by 2009. Um, it was a very dark journey for me. Um, and I never thought I would make it out alive. Neither did anybody close to me. Uh, the only person who believed that I could make it and maybe get some help was my mom. And my mom never gave up on me. And uh, in 2014, I finally, as a result of my mom, you know, being the only one to believe in me and encourage me to get help, I got help and I got help in the public treatment system and I got on buprenorphine. Um, which I was on for the first part of my recovery. Um, and I was lucky because I accessed uh, not just a low barrier treatment, but uh, recovery housing, a recovery coach. You know, I drove Uber for the first year uh, of my recovery and, and I had no desire to ever talk about my journey and addiction, the things I did. I, I didn't want people to know I was in recovery my first year in 2015. And uh, I lived in a sober living for 18 months. Um, and it was in that sober living about a year into my recovery that I started experiencing something that really bothered me um, to my core, shook me, not even bothered me, shook me to my core. And that was people that I loved and that I cared about and people who had become my friends and that I was so close to started dying. And they were dying in our recovery home, they were roommates of mine were being turned away at hospital rooms when they were asking for help. People were leaving the recovery house to go take a job or move. And I'd find out three weeks later that they were dead. And, um, and I would be told, this is just what happens. You know, people, elders of mine in recovery would, I'd say, I don't get this. Like this, this shouldn't, this shouldn't be happening. Like people shouldn't just be disappearing left and right. And we should be okay with it. And um, it was in that summer of 2016 that my advocacy journey started. Uh, I took a trip that summer across the country with my best friend, and we went to 22 states over 30 days and traveled over 8,000 miles and visited with people just like us, people in recovery, people who were still using drugs, family members, policymakers. You know, we went to recovery centers. We went to homeless shelters just to learn. Um, I wanted to hear how other people felt about this. And I came home from that trip and recognized that I wasn't alone, that I wasn't the only one who was upset, that I wasn't the only one who was uncomfortable 
with what was going on. Um, and that's how the advocacy started. It, it, it started in a sober home in 2016 after visiting with a lot of people around this country um, who said they were fed up. And, um, you know, it took many different pathways. I wrote a lot. I wrote a lot of letters, showed up at a lot of rallies. Tony, that's how we met through Fed Up. Yeah, um, yeah so you, know, you at the Fed Up rally in 2017, I think, or 2018. Yeah, 2017, 2018, I, I, you know, went to legislators to, to push them for legislation around sober homes and the lock zone and treatment standards and um, and, and it's just kind of grown ever since. And, and, you know, specific to the Sacklers and Purdue, um, I didn't know who the Sacklers were, but, you know, when I got, when I got sober, I didn't know who they were when I was using, I knew what Purdue was because their name was on the side of my pill bottle. Um, but when I got into recovery in 2015, I started to, you know, do what I use some of the tactics that I had before, which is really start to explore, the roots of, of this overdose crisis and, and these catastrophic losses that I was experiencing. And, you know, there was definitely a direct line to one family um, who manufactured, distributed, came up with the marketing plans and the strategies for weaponizing our medicine cabinets uh, with a highly powerful opioid product in Oxycontin. And um, the more I learned about the Sacklers, the more infuriated and fed up, I guess you could say, I was getting. Um, and they became one of the early targets of, of my advocacy, you know, through the work at Fed Up, uh, through the, the actions that we've done with Nan Golden, uh, through a lot of my writing when I was writing for the Huffington Post, um, through the, you know, through the work we did in front of the Smithsonian and the, the 2018 rally that we did in front of Purdue. And um, so when Purdue filed for bankruptcy in September 2019, I was kind of a natural target for the Department of Justice to, you know, ask or invite to sit on this creditors committee to represent the creditors in the Purdue Pharma case. Um, but what I thought I was getting into, and it's the subject and the topic of my most recent book, Unsettled you know, was, was not what I thought I was getting into from day one. You know, I thought it was everybody versus Purdue, everybody versus, you know, the Sacklers. Um, but what I quickly learned is that the American bankruptcy system is not about facts. It's not about justice even. It's about no. money and it's about power. And it's about how that money is distributed amongst very powerful institutions. And it's about creating divisions amongst, you know, parties who were harmed by that company. And um, it was a maddening process, you know, and, and our work, you know, was cut out for us then. And it continues to be even more cut out for us today, even with the litigation coming to a close. You know, we're, we're on the cusp of catastrophic, unprecedented overdose death numbers that continue to rise year after year and very little action, federal action or state action to abate this crisis. It just continues to get worse. Oh, it's definitely going the wrong way. Before you get way ahead of us, yeah, um, you did serve on the, on the committee uh, for the unsecured creditors. So let's give a little bit better background. What is the unsecured creditors committee? for people. And, and how much time did that involve? And did you get paid to do this? 
So it's a great question. I did not get paid to do it. It was all volunteer. Uh, <clears throat> it felt like the victims on the committee, there were four of us that were appointed, were the only ones not making any money <laughs> um, because everybody else was, was pretty much a professional lawyer representing a larger creditor interest. Um, it was a very disappointing process. Um, for background, the Unsecured Creditors Committee uh, if you think of bankruptcy law, you know, and you were to think of Purdue Pharma as the defendant, there would need to be a plaintiff. And the way the bankruptcy code is written is that a company that goes into bankruptcy, you've got the debtor, which is Purdue Pharma, and then you have an unsecured creditors committee, which ultimately serves as, and it's the only fiduciary statutory body that represents all creditors, which you could say were kind of plaintiffs. So the Unsecured Creditors Committee in Purdue is a nine-member committee appointed by the DOJ that um, represented and continues to this day. I resigned from the committee in September last September, um, but represented in Purdue over 600,000 different claims, of which 138,000 of those were victims. Um, and the committee's job was to essentially help negotiate a potential settlement to the bankruptcy case. Because you have to remember the bankruptcy court and the unsecured, this isn't a criminal justice court. There has to be a settlement at some point. Money is going to go out the door. It's a company in chapter 11. Um, there is no you know, legal avenue for the committee to press charges or to even go into a criminal route. Um, so the goal of the committee was to come up with the most equitable and fair settlement that it could in distributing the value of the company. Um, of the nine members, though, only four of them were victims. So you do the math there, right? You have five corporations and four victims. So there were a lot of very contentious votes that I think, you know, went right down victim versus corporation uh, you know, line to line that weren't very favorable to victims because it was a fight for money. Um, the committee had the ability to subpoena documents, review records, have discovery on the Sacklers, conduct depositions. Um, I sat through hundreds of hours of closed depositions um, with members of the Sackler family, um, former board members, financial advisors to Purdue. Uh, to ask some really difficult questions about their their financial uh, standing. Did you do this on Zoom or were you in a courtroom the whole time? Yeah, great question. So this was primarily all done through Zoom. At the beginning of the case, um, some of it was done in person because the case started in September of 2019. Um, and I didn't even know what Zoom was at the time. Um, September 2019, and then uh, starting in March of 2020, which was shortly after the case began, uh, everything moved to Zoom very quickly because of the pandemic. I see. So, I mean, um, the other five um, committee members that were on there with you that represented big corporations, was, was CBS one of those corporations? They sure were, um, which was really upsetting to me. Uh, the United States trustee for the Department of Justice had the sole power to make the appointment to the committee. Um, and they appointed CVS Caremark as one of the committee members. And as your listeners may know, you know, that to me, there, there was a lot of conflict of interest on the committee appointments. I mean, 
CVS was appointed um, to sit on this committee when at the same time they were a defendant in the multi-district opioid litigation going on in Judge Polster's courtroom. You know, so their interests looked a lot different. And, and I thought it highly inappropriate that CVS was appointed to that committee. How much did CVS claim that they were owed? Uh, hundreds, hundreds of millions of dollars. And why? Uh, if they were buying the goods from, from Purdue, why would they feel? I think I know the answer, but I'd like to hear it from you. Sure. I mean, they their claim to being um, harmed by Purdue was around uh, non-payment of uh, insurance rebates. Well, re- rebates, basically pharmaceutical rebates, right? So Purdue offering rebates on the drugs and on, on Oxycontin, um, and they felt that they were owed a significant amount of money uh, in those in those rebates. Um, also appointed, though, to the committee was um, Blue Cross Blue Shield, you know, the insurance, the big, big insurance company. Um, and there they had like a six hundred million dollar claim against the company. And it was really frustrating to me because I feel like Blue Cross Blue Shield was in cahoots with Purdue and that Blue Cross Blue Shield at some point may become a defendant as well. You know, because we know we know that insurance companies were one of the primary drivers also as to why Oxycontin was so overprescribed, because insurance companies would pay for Oxycontin, but they wouldn't pay for alternative pain treatments. Right. And so the fact now now that money was on the table, uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield felt that they had been harmed and they were going to get a slice of the pie was also maddening. And I think the jury's still out as to whether or not there will be litigation against Blue Cross. I think there will. I mean, this is a company that has violated insurance parity multiple times, Has will deny people um, insurance uh, claims for addiction treatment, but on the other hand, will pay for you know medications like Oxycontin without even blinking. I mean, it, it, it the whole thing was absurd. Well, I heard... Um that CVS and their uh, McKenzie, their, their, um, their company that promotes them, I'm trying to think of what the, tre- te- the term is, that McKenzie has, was also serving Purdue at the same time and they made some kind of deal where if you get so many people on board or addicted that you'd get, they'd get bonus by- They'd get bo- by- well, bonus rebates, yeah. That, that was where the rebates, McKinsey was really an interesting kind of linchpin in this whole process. And, you know, McKinsey settled separately um, with the states uh, on, I think, a $550 million settlement um, for for a lot of the the dirty tricks that they pulled during Purdue. Um, You know, McKinsey was an advisor to Purdue on many of these strategies around insurance and pharmacies. Um, And I think that the there's still more to come on McKinsey that we'll see, but in terms of the claims against the state, most of the states, 50 states, including Massachusetts, um, those have now been settled through a separate uh, settlement that happened um, about a year ago now. Um, one of the interesting things, though, that was revealed with McKinsey, though, too, was you know Purdue didn't just contract with McKinsey around sales strategy; they contact contracted with them around PR strategy. So. You know, you both you and I um, were, were highly involved with FedUp for some time, and um, Purdue. One of Purdue's mandates to McKinsey was how to respond to parents that were in FedUp. You know, how how do they combat yeah. this message? You know, of of 
family members who are are really distraught and are taking it to the media. Um, and and McKinsey advised Purdue on how to quote unquote handle that situation. I mean, the fact that McKinsey would take on a client like that is beyond you know reproach. <laughs> well, they had a, they were double dipping. They had CVS on one side showing them how they could make money by just distributing opioids through well, Purdue and. And then they not were getting just, not just double dipping like that though either because I explore this in Unsettled right. They were working for Purdue and working for CVS right. Um, on I'll just talk about the Purdue side, talking to Purdue on how to you know uh, uh, turbocharge their sales, handle these PR uh, issues they're having with families but also contracting with state governments around best practices around the opioid crisis. Purdue, I mean, McKinsey to this day still has um, many contracts with individual state governments around opioid issues and around COVID-19 issues. So it's like they were taking dollars from all sides. It really was fascinating. I, I mean, and I'll, I, I, I don't use this lightly, but you know, there's a level of um, ethical issues and borderline corruption when it comes to McKinsey. Well, so now you're sitting here through weeks and weeks of this testimony. And did you see Richard Sackler himself um, being deposed? Yes. So I sat through uh, two days of depositions with Richard Sackler um, and pretty much every single member of the Sackler family. Um, I sat through multiple days of depositions with them. Yes, and he is um, as evil, you know, as Hulu's dope sick makes him out to be. He's one evil SOB. Yeah, he should. It sure seems like it. I mean, if you were sitting there in person with him, I would think you would have had to restrain yourself to from, it was difficult. Yeah. It, you know, I was, uh, I watched it and listened to it. You know, I, I think what struck me the most about Richard Sackler's testimony was um, he was so casual about it and evasive about many of the answers. And really his demeanor felt as though it was someone who knew that no matter what questions were asked of him or how bad uh, certain situations were that were presented to him that he was involved with or certain decisions he had made, that he knew intrinsically that he was going to get off and that no matter what he said was not going to impact the outcome of this particular case, that you know, the die had really already been cast on what was going to happen to the Sackler family and that he was not going to end up in any type of criminal liability over this. So, you know, whereas you would think people and defendants would be more or someone being deposed by, you know, 50 different attorneys general. I mean, that would make me pretty nervous. I'm sure it would make you nervous, Tony, if you had to be deposed by 50, you know, state government, you know, law enforcement agents. Um, around something as, you know, uh, high profile as the overdose crisis and your role in it, right? Knowing what Richard Sackler did. 
Richard didn't care. I mean, this was someone who just didn't care and he knew what the outcome was going to be. So he was casual. He laid back in his chair some. He even joked. I mean, it was um, it was disgusting. I imagine that, that it was. Um, now, when you're when the bankruptcies and on, you know, the whole discussion came up, when did they discuss the fact that the Sacklers would become uh, immune from taking any of their personal money? That, that's the part that, because I know when the case first came out and it was settled, uh, the Attorney General in, in Connecticut appealed it the same day. And I, I was furious because I don't see, how does the Sacklers get immunity from their personal finances when they're filing bankruptcy, you know, for their own company, even after they've taken nine to $10 billion out of the company? Yeah, this is a great that's question. That's the part, the bankruptcy rules that, that aggravates me the most. Yeah, it's a great question. And um, it deserves a lot of exploration. So, and it is confusing for a lot of people. Um, and it was very confusing for me. So I, to be set the record straight, I hate the idea of what are called these non-consensual third-party releases. A non-consensual third-party release has been ingrained in bankruptcy code for decades. Congress gave the bankruptcy courts the power um, decades ago to determine that if a non-debtor, which is basically the Sackler family, they didn't declare bankruptcy, but they are attached to Purdue, makes in the bankruptcy court's determination a substantial contribution into the bankruptcy, which essentially would mean the Sacklers writing a very large check towards the chapter 11 bankruptcy that would be distributed to creditors for the benefit of creditors, right? So to the benefit of victims, essentially, that they that the court could have the authority to give them a non-consensual third-party release, which would um, give them essentially immunity, civil immunity, from being sued for anything resulting from that bankruptcy, which in this case is the opioid crisis, the overdose crisis. The decision around the Sackler's participation as a non-debtor to write a check into the bankruptcy came before the bankruptcy even happened, right? It was determined by half of the attorney generals in the United, attorneys general in the United States, which were known at that time as the consenting group, mostly made of Republican AGs, that the Sacklers would make a $3 billion contribution into Purdue's estate to be able to be paid to creditors. This was done because without, without the Sacklers making a contribution, there is really no money in Purdue. Purdue's worth about a billion dollars on paper and the federal government has claimed that money first to reimburse Medicaid costs. So there would be no money for victims. So it, you know, this whole Sackler immunity, civil immunity thing is not new. It's been around for, you know, been going on for about two and a half years now. Um, since then, the Sacklers negotiated, as you know, with the other attorneys general, including Connecticut Attorney General Tong and uh, uh, the Attorney General of Washington State most recently. Um, and, you know, over the summer, uh, Attorney General Healy, Attorney General James in New York, 
um, to a point now where all 50 attorneys general are on board uh, with the Sacklers upping their contribution. It went from, it's doubled from $3 billion to $6 billion um, that they have to give to get that release. Those dollars will go to those states for abatement. Now, I know people, and including myself, were upset that the Sacklers can't get sued in civil court, you know, for their role. But the you've got to look at it this way as well. We're still only talking about civil court here. <laughs> um, yeah. If 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 the Sacklers, there's a very good chance that if we are not to do these releases in the bankruptcy court, let you play down this scenario, the six, that $6 billion goes away, A. Um, there is no money, even as little as money as they have right now for those 138,000 victims. Those 138,000 victims get zero without those dollars. The states get zero in abatement dollars, but sure, we could, potentially sue the Sacklers for more money in civil court now. But what happens in civil court when that, if, if let's say one of the states or even a company, let's say Blue Cross Blue Shield, because they'd be able to sue too. They, someone goes, sues the Sacklers. There's a 50-50 chance that they may lose and the Sacklers keep all the money. Or on the other 50% chance, one of these entities wins. And let's say they win $7 billion and they get another billion dollars out of the Sacklers. Again, this is only civil, civil releases, not criminal, civil. So one creditor or one party will recover $7 billion. Maybe it's $10 billion. One it'll be a race to the courthouse. One party will recover more money out of the Sacklers, but they're not going to share it with 50 states and 138,000 people over a highly negotiated, equitable, you know, it's not really equitable, but at least share it with other creditors, which can be done in the bankruptcy court. So people hear about these releases and they're like, it's BS. It is BS, but that's, I mean, we have to take that up with Congress. That's how the bankruptcy code has, that's what it's dealt us. Um, and yes, maybe someone could go sue the Sacklers and get more money, but there's no guarantee they're going to share it with the rest of the states and the rest of the victims. And there's also a great chance that let's say they do get a $10 billion settlement, that the Sacklers themselves are then going to go into bankruptcy themselves, and we're just going to end back up at square one. Now, meanwhile, the only people making money in this whole scenario are the lawyers. <laughs> the right, lawyers, oh, yeah, definitely. The lawyers so, uh, have been paid close to a billion and a half dollars already before a penny has gotten to the ground or to victims. And uh, the longer this process goes on, the more money the lawyers make. And, they and the take less money there is to go around. That's right. It is a melting ice cube. And my position now today is it is time to end this bankruptcy madness and get this thing into the court where it really should be, which is criminal court. Let's end right. this whole dance around bankruptcy and civil procedure. And let's get the United States Department of Justice. Let's get one of these attorneys general that have police powers 
to indict members of the Sackler family, to have them sit for a grand jury, and to have them face the exact same type of justice that you or I or most Americans would face if we had committed crimes that rise to the level of what the Sacklers have done in this country. But that hasn't happened because this whole process has never been about justice. It has been about money. I see. I would say that Ryan has a lot more patience than I do to sit through all of this trial. And it went on, it's went on, went on for months. Is that correct, Ryan? It's been going on for years. Yes. Years. Yeah, like went on. I mean, awesome. I was on the committee for two years. It was um, the most draining, disappointing experience I've ever <laughs> experienced. And did not, not as a double entendre there, though. But like, I literally say, I mean, the judge is drained. I mean, it was draining, you know. <laughs> Were you sequestered from saying anything to anybody? Um, at the time I was, yes, I was under uh, self-imposed gag orders as a member of the committee, but I broke all those um, when I resigned in September 2021 and um, published the book. I just didn't really care anymore, nor do I care well, now. I mean, the Sacklers are going to walk away scot-free if somebody wants to come after me for something that I have to say about it. Um, you know, they can kick rocks. <laughs> okay, very good. I was going to ask you, when did you decide you were going to write this book? So I had originally, um, and when I joined the committee, was very open about it. I had been working on a project on about Purdue and about uh, the Sacklers pre-getting appointed to the committee. And I'd been socializing it with my publisher and you know, the, the folks on the committee lawyers said, hey, you know, it's no problem if you're writing a book about them. You just can't talk about the bankruptcy or, or anything you've learned here as a part of it. Like, we can't stop you from writing a book about Purdue. You, you, you know, you've written a book before and whatnot. Just be careful what you write. And so I was like, OK, fine. And I wrote, started writing it. And the first three or four chapters were about the Sackler family and about Purdue and it was in March of 2020, you know, when I realized I was writing the wrong book, um, the corruption and just the, the, the deals and, you know, what public officials were saying out in public, attorneys general were saying out in public about the case and then behind closed doors, what they were doing to keep money away from victims and kill you know, abatement proposals and emergency relief proposals that would get money to, you know, um, needed services in favor of their states taking more claim to the money. I mean, it just, it was, you know, the tactics that the lawyers were using. I mean, I was just like completely blindsided and, and astonished that this stuff was legal that was going on. And I started writing what is now unsettled because I felt that if these tactics didn't make their way out into the public. And if what really happened didn't make out, make its way out into the public domain, that the process would repeat itself one day and it would just be a different issue. And um, so I started writing more and more about the bankruptcy and the book became more and more about the process than it did about the Sacklers, but the Sacklers just kind of played a central role in it. Um, but I didn't tell any of the lawyers that I had changed direction. On the book, and quite frankly, when I, when the book was finally announced in October, um, there was a lot of worry that I would get sued. There was a lot of worry on repercussions, um, 
you know, because they, I think they were just as surprised as anyone else that the book ended up being more about them than it was about the Sacklers. Because if you read Unsettled, like, yeah, the Sacklers are a common theme in it, but there were a lot of people who helped them get to where they're at today, you know, and I wanted to write about those people. Yeah, I mean, they're, especially their attorneys. And, yeah. And um, <clears throat> if I remember correctly now in this, I, I think it was you that was talking about it in uh, D.C. that the Sacklers were... We, they were originally housed in Stamford, Connecticut. Right. And they decided to go to White Plains to file bankruptcy because they do they right. do rent a rent an office in White Plains and say that was their new corporate headquarters. Yeah, they were able to have a satellite office in White Plains, New York. There's a very famous building actually just a couple blocks away from the United States court bankruptcy courthouse in White Plains, New York, uh, that corporations rent space in just for the just for the sole purpose of being able to get in Judge Drain's courtroom uh, in, in, in his district for, for, for bankruptcy proceedings. Uh, Judge Robert D. Drain uh, is well known in the bankruptcy circuit as one of the most debtor-friendly judges in the United States. And when I say debtor-friendly, I mean someone who favors the corporation, right? Believes the corporation, you know, gives deference to the corporation over other creditors. And he's also been very loose with third-party releases. And so, you know, Purdue chose White Plains, New York as the venue to file for bankruptcy, but who they were really, what they were really choosing was Judge Robert Drain. Um, you know, the, the, the venue shopping, uh, and that's what we call venue shopping, right? Where corporations get to pick their judges when they go into bankruptcy. Um, it, it's it's an insane practice. Um, if I get charged with a crime, I certainly don't get to go choose my judge. But if a company commits some egregious behavior like Purdue did and they have to go into bankruptcy, they essentially can pick what judge uh, they want. Now, there is legislation, and this is one of the things that people can do. There is pending legislation right now in Congress uh, that will ban the practice such known as, um, as venue shopping. Uh, these, are, these are issues that Congress has to take up. Um, and I think that the Purdue Pharma bankruptcy has exposed many of the inadequacies and, and, and problems that we have uh, in the bankruptcy system and advocates uh, and victims advocates and consumer advocates uh, have responded uh, in pushing for, for legislation that would get rid of some of these practices, hopefully for good. So now um, being one of the parents of the 130,000 lawsuits, <clears throat> what are the odds that any of the parents are going to get any money? Well, I will say that if the plan goes through, you know, if there is a bankruptcy plan, uh, they will get money. Um, the matter of how much, I don't know. I would say on a sliding scale, like for someone like me, who's alive and working and doesn't have all of my records because pharmacy records in the state of Florida have a five-year statute of limitations. So I couldn't even get them if I wanted. Um, I probably will qualify for the minimum amount of 3,500. Uh, for family members who have lost a loved one uh, directly tied to an Oxycontin overdose that can that there's some records for, um, that number could get closer to 30 to $40,000. It's a paltry sum. Um, and I think one of the confusions that many people have is they're angry at Purdue about that. Um, the ones to be angry about why 
victims are getting so little money is not Purdue. It's actually your attorney general. Uh, your attorneys general in unison across this country fought very hard to get that victim recovery pool as low as possible. Uh, because you have to remember this was a battle for dollars. The less money victims got in direct victim compensation, the more money the state got in their state treasury for opioid abatement. So the bankruptcy system really pit people against each other who should be allies in this fight. Uh, but when money is on the table, all bets are off. So um, I also heard that we're talking about, let's say a parent gets the 40,000, isn't it gonna be spread out over multiple years? Yes. So there will be an initial payment that will come immediately, um, but the victim's payments will not be spread out over as long as the state's payments. Victim payments will be spread out probably over the course of three to four years. Yeah, because the payments will be spread out as payments are made into the bankruptcy, right? Because but, but the reality is on the death side, because yeah. um, I know several parents who filed and their child got addicted to, like my son got addicted to Oxycontin. And, but he got off Oxycontin and started doing methadone right. and died of an acute overdose of methadone. Yep. So, so how do I prove that that's a direct co correlation to Oxycontin? And how do I know yeah. whether it came from Johnson & Johnson or Purdue yeah. Pharma? These are all great questions and some of the most infuriating issues that we had to deal with and I still have to deal with today. Um, if Oxycontin was involved in his use <clears throat> at any point, during um, his addiction, he didn't have to necessarily die from Oxycontin. But if it started with Oxycontin or Oxycontin was a part of his addiction journey, uh, then he has a qualified legitimate claim. Um, this was something that, that was highly contentious throughout the process. Uh, we victims fought very hard to make it as open as possible, meaning that you know, we thought that even people who didn't have Oxycontin use per se, but were uh, had an addiction issue or an opioid addiction issue should be able to have a valid claim against the company. Um, it was state attorneys general and the federal government uh, who fought very hard to make sure that the rules were uh, much more tight for individual victims, meaning you had to prove through a prescription uh, that Oxycontin was part of the harm. Now for comparison, the states don't have to prove anything. <laughs> they got to just show up and say, hey, Purdue's bad and the cost of the overdose crisis is $2 trillion plus to our state governments. Therefore, we have a multi-trillion dollar claim against the company and we should get the majority of the money. And you go to the state, well, you say, hey, state of Massachusetts or Wyoming or Connecticut, prove to us that Oxycontin was the cause of all this harm. And they were like, go kick rocks. We don't have to prove it, we're the states. And we're saying, okay, then why do individual victims have to prove that Oxycontin is the direct, you know, directly responsible for the harms that we've had? They're like, well, because you're the victims. And I'm like, well, that doesn't make any sense because your claims rest on our backs. Like without our claims, you don't have any claim. Without individual victims who have lost employment or lost a loved one or have lost a house or are homeless without our harm you have no harm so why is your harm more important important than our harm it's backwards, right backwards it's yeah, backwards it is. yeah and you spell because, all this out in your book 
absolutely. And in my opinion, victims, you, me, other victims, the 138,000 victims should be at the top of the pyramid. They should get paid first. They should get paid the most. And then after that, the states should come. You know why? Because the states have other revenue streams to abate the opioid crisis. We pay tax dollars for a lot of these services that they say they're going to provide as a result of this litigation money. They should be providing those services regardless of litigation money. The victims in this case don't have other um, of other avenues of justice, which in this country sadly means money, right? So why deprive victims of their settlement so that you can pay your state treasury? It makes no sense, but I understand it. I mean, that's, I mean, I know a, a one parent who's still paying for two funerals had to finance it. Good she's God. still paying twice as much, you know, because of finance charges and everything. She lost two children and she's raising grandchildren. Mm. So, you know, this is just gets so out of, so out of control. Um, there was a point there where you are face to face with David Sackler. Now, I got to tell you, I saw David Sackler on the hearing on that committee hearing that they had with Mrs. Mahoney. Yep. Um, and after listening to him whine about paying taxes on nine billion dollars or something, I wanted to take him in the closet and finish him off. You know, yeah. I was like. He's just so ag so aggravating and so annoying. Tell me what it was like when you went face to face with David Sackler, who, by the way, for people who don't know, is Richard Sackler's son, who was a multi-billionaire himself. I demanded a meeting with him in the spring of 2020 because state attorneys general were negotiating with the Sacklers on more money and other large corporate interests were in lawyers. And I said, the victims need to have you know, victim representation to demand that the Sacklers put more money on the table for victims and immediately. And um, it was a contentious meeting. You know, he's an incredibly privileged, you know, uh, he's his father's son, I guess you could say, yeah. uh, in the way in the way that he approached this. But I was astonished by his lack of empathy. And his immediate go-to was how the Sacklers didn't have any more money and that 3 billion was all they had. And that if we wanted to go after more than we would see them in court and they would probably win. Um, you know, I haven't had the opportunity and I hope I don't in the future, but to like really look evil, like directly in the eye um, and that's the best way I can describe it. Maddening, powerlessness, evil. Like I felt powerless over him. And I felt like I was looking at like the devil incarnate, talking to him on the phone or talking to him on the Zoom because it was a video call. And it was after that call that I realized what we were really up against. You know, we were not as powerful as we thought we were. We were getting there. You know, I think that one of the outcomes out of the Purdue Pharma bankruptcy is that the victim community, the advocacy community, the activist community is stronger and it's building. And one day, maybe we will have the infrastructure and the organ organizing power to take on successfully institutions like Purdue and families like the Sacklers. Um, but I really realized we were up against a giant after that call. 
Yeah, in the um, in the court case that's in Dope Sick in 2007, um, and um, there was this discussion about a 120 page memo yeah, that the judge never got to see. Yeah. And um, where do we stand with that? Is there any possibility that that would be used down the road or anything? Well, one would hope so. Um, we tried to get our hands on it um, for months from the Department of Justice, and they just would not uncap it. Um, it, you know, I think all a lot of the answers lie in that memo, and it is hidden for a very specific reason. Um, this is part of the anger I have with the federal government. Part of the anger I have with the Department of Justice is they're sitting on a heap of information that they just won't use. And one has to ask the question why, you know, many feel that it's because if you go after the Sacklers criminally, it's going to expose some really serious, dark stuff that we don't want to know about the federal government's role in allowing the Sacklers to flourish. Yeah, so I was going to ask you the next thing, since we knew have a, a new attorney general since the beginning of this case. And I've seen very little movement from this guy, uh, Merrick Garland. And uh, do you think there's ever going to be an opportunity that we're going to get criminal charges from the feds? I always like if anybody who knows me knows I'm an eternal optimist, almost to a fault. <laughs> um, I feel that maybe one day I think I think the deck, to be completely honest, is stacked against us. And I think that it is a very tall order to get there. Um, because if they were going to do it, they would have done it already. Um, you know, you have to remember that the Department of Justice is leading the appeal right now in the, the civil case in the Second Circuit on the bankruptcy court. Um, the DOJ wants money. You know, if the DOJ wanted justice, they would drop their appeal and they would go get this out of civil court and they would go, you know, gangbusters on them in criminal court. Because once there's a civil settlement, it's very unlikely that there'll be criminal charges. Well, I was going to say that, um, do you think that the whole thing of January 6th is, is, is overtaken the whole Sackler thing is like, which is a priority in this country? You know, we have the attack on the Capitol versus the Sackler family and the DOJ is the one who's going to have to bring the charges in both cases. I don't think that the DOJ is overrun by January 6th or any other case. I think that um, it's by choice that they haven't done anything. If the Department of Justice wanted to go after the Sacklers, they definitely have the capacity to do it. Okay. So uh, let people know the name of your book. Yes. How to Unsettled, How the Purdue Pharma Bankruptcy Failed the Victims of the American Overdose Crisis. It's available anywhere books are sold, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, your favorite independent bookseller. Um, any you know proceeds from it uh, on, on royalties are going to support uh, a nonprofit organization that I chose in, in Massachusetts, actually, Team Sharing, um, you know, a cause that's near and dear to my heart. Um, and Tony, I just am grateful for uh, spending some time with you today and, and it's always good to see you we could see you on zoom here and hopefully next time we we get together in person it won't be so cold yeah that's right so when you're saying team sharing as opposed to 
teen sharing. This team sharing is the parents group. The yes, one that team sharing. Yeah, Gerald, it's a, it's, Gerald Jouer is in charge of. Gerald Jouer, yeah, it's a nonprofit in um, uh, Marlboro, Massachusetts, based in Marlboro, Massachusetts, which I think has 20 chapters around the country that support uh, families and, and parents who have lost a loved one to an overdose. Yes, and I want to really thank you, Ryan, for giving us time today. It's Ryan Hampton, and uh, who's... Oh, I'm sure we could have this discussion for at least another hour or two because I still have more questions than answers. So I really want to thank you for taking the time and and um, speaking with us today. And you know, the name of our show is Courage to Hope. And just go way back in the beginning. Uh, Ryan had a serious addiction, and he licked it. And it shows that there is courage. You know, if you have the courage, and you there is hope because Ryan did it. And uh, he's one of those examples that if you get yourself set and then mentally in the right position, it can happen and things, good things can happen. And again, thank you very much, Ryan. And this is Tony LaGreca, thanking everybody for listening to Courage to Hope. Thank you, Tony. Thanks all. 